0: Let the nations know of your goodness and grace, and may our lives shout out your love to all of mankind. We must shout, for the dead cannot hear, and you must awaken their ears, so that the shouts will be whispers in their soul. Help us, Lord, this morning to remember that you are speaking to us, and sometimes we are the ones who cannot hear either because of the distractions of life or the hardness of our soul. So break up our fallow ground and deposit the Spirit's seed, the Word of God, that it might grow and flourish. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this is an unusual morning. They've got the lights turned down dark. I can hardly see you. I know someone is out there. There we go, thank you. We are only having one service at the 11 o'clock hour. Both services are going to be combined. I don't think that impacts you, but as people are coming in and wondering what's going on, you can spread the message, and uh, we hope to have a few people gathering at the 11 o'clock hour. I'm always uh, amazed at God's plan and providence, how He likes to shake up our lives. Uh, man Plans his way, God directs his steps. That's Proverbs 16. Uh, The pastors plan a service, God says, watch me change it. And uh, so someone gets sick and they can't come in. But I'm thankful for the choir that was here and uh, those who ministered, they they braved all the elements, as did you, and uh, you are to receive a star today, which means absolutely nothing. But thank you. (laughs) Thank you anyhow for coming in. have your Bibles, let me encourage you to open to Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue our study of sit, walk, and stand. Just to remind you that those three words summarize the entire book. The idea of the first three chapters is our position in Christ. We are seated in the heavenlies. We are in the accomplishment of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, and all that he has won for us is indeed given to us as we are in Christ. That's our position. Then we go to our walk, starting in Chapter 4. That is how we are to live in light of our position. We are to walk worthy of our calling, consistently, appropriately, with who we are. And then finally, we're going to see in Chapter 6, we have to stand. Because the evil day is here, and it is coming. There is wickedness around us, and we must stand true. There is coming more wickedness, more difficulties and trials in our lives in the future. We know from studying the Bible that the evil one will do even more and more to uh, rip people away from the gospel of Christ and try to defeat uh, God Almighty, but he won't be able to do that. And so the final battles are described in the book of the Revelation And indeed, that's what we've got in Ephesians 6, the battle with the powers, the principalities, uh, the structure of wickedness around us. And that's really what the word world means. Cosmos means order. And it means that there is a structure in the worldly order around us that indeed is demonic, and you see its effect on society everywhere. But we come to Ephesians chapter 4 and we were told to put off the old man and to put on the new. For instance, in verse 21, surely you have heard of Christ, you were taught in Christ in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires and to be made new in the attitude of your minds. That is, to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Put off, put on. Back in 1975, there was a best-selling book entitled Dress for Success, written by John Malloy. He basically was saying that the way you dress, your clothing, can influence and even determine your success in the business world and also your prosperity in your personal life. He followed it two years later by a book entitled The Woman's Dress for Success book. And together, these two books formed the concept of power dressing. <laughs> and there is some element of truth to it, to be sure. He argued in his book for women in 1977 this is the most important book ever written about women's clothes because it is based on scientific research not on merely personal opinion subconsciously people will judge you by the clothes you're wearing they'll judge you based on uh, your dress as far as social status and even education and ability so if you're going in for a job interview dress for success he would say dress like you already have the job dress appropriate to that position. In fact, even today, there is a company entitled Dress for Success with 152 offices in 28 countries, serving over a million women. Their mission is to empower women to achieve economic independence by providing a network of support, professional attire, and developmental tools to help women thrive in work and in life. I tell you, there is some value to such an approach, to be sure. There is some solid research behind it. But millennials don't think of dressing for success. They think the exact opposite. Uh, To dress for success uh, is the idea of uh, hypocrisy and that it's all about the clothes. And so you have the big debate. Do the clothes make the man, the person? Do they truly describe who they are? How does your clothing affect you? And and on and on we could go. You say, why talk about all of this? Because this morning I want to talk about dressing for success, spiritually speaking. And that means to put off your old dress, as we just read, and put on your new dress, which is a totally different way to live. And so the Apostle Paul takes us to the book of Ephesians, And he describes this idea of dressing for success spiritually. And he basically tells us there are six areas in which we need to put off and put on. Put off the vices and put on the virtues. It's another way to look at it. In other words, he's saying there's no progress in holiness by simply adding good behaviors, Simultaneously, we must put off the old while we put on the new. We must rigorously reject all the lingering habits and ways and dispositions of our sinful self. In the book of Colossians, it says to put them to death, which is another image. And we need to diligently develop Christ-like characteristics. Basically, Paul is saying it would be uh, just as vain for you to try to become Christ-like in your behavior without putting off what is not Christ-like. That would be like planting flowers in a garden bed infested by weeds. You've got to do some weeding as well as some planting. I think that's pretty apparent to all of us. The problem is I hate weeding. Actually, I hate gardening, but (laughs) weeding is something I don't want to do, and if I have to plant flowers, that's okay, but to prepare the bed for the flowers is an odious task. But Paul says that's what you've got to do. So, we're going to look at six things that Paul mentions. Now, there are more than six, in fact, there is a companion uh, portion of scripture in Colossians. Remember, Paul wrote Colossians and Ephesians, those two letters to two churches in two cities, at the same time when he was in prison and he was cutting and pasting to a large degree and writing a similar message. However, sometimes it was a little different and the lists are different. Someone may say, "Ah, oh, that's a proof that the Bible's not inspired because the accounts aren't the same. No, he's writing to different groups and he changes it up a little bit, just like you and I do. And and what it does tell us is that this list is not exhaustive, but extremely practical and suggestive. And if you would even take one of these during the week or take one per day during the week and rest on the Sabbath, you'd have the opportunity to look at these important vices and virtues that need to be put off and that need to be put on. So here's the first one, and we're now down to verse 25. Therefore, in light of the fact that you are to put on the new person, who is to be righteous and holy, therefore you must put off all falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. So the first thing is, put off lying and put on speaking the truth, or honest talk. This is a portion of scripture that I often use when I'm doing marital counseling on communication, husbands and wives. How do you communicate with one another? Put off lying and speak the truth. And so many of us as couples don't do that. Because we're afraid of the truth. Now, we've got to speak the truth in love, but we still must speak the truth. Hey, honey, is there any problem? No. Are you sure there's not a problem? No. I'm sensing, I said there was no problem, which means there's a big problem. I simply don't want to talk about it. Speak the truth. Maybe the truth is, yeah, there's a problem. I just can't talk about it right now. Give me some time to cool off. But we don't speak the truth, even with those who are nearest and dearest to us. And we must put off lying. Lying is such a part of our culture. Deception. Misrepresentation. I'm not going to tell you what is right or wrong. I'm just going to be silent, which is deceitful. It's all in the same category. And by the way, this is one of the Ten Commandments. That we are not to bear False witness, not to lie. So speak the truth. Truth speaking. Are you good at being honest? I mean really honest. Notice, he says we are to put off all falsehood and speak truthfully to our neighbor. Who is our neighbor? Well, uh, the wonderful parable of the Good Samaritan says anyone in need. Anyone near to us, anyone that we are aware of is indeed our neighbor. So that's the broad perspective, but look at how narrow it is in this verse. Because we are all members of one body, specifically we're speaking about the church. Or we might even go to that more intimate relationship of husband and wife, because that's exactly what Paul is going to do in chapter 5. The church and husband and wife are mystery uh, examples of one another. And indeed, when you get married, you become one with the person you marry, just like we become one in the body of Christ when we become Christians. So especially speak the truth with one another. And it is sad to say that so many churches are really good at deception from the top So the congregation often doesn't know what's really going on. And the pastors try to give every impression that things are perfect. I am thankful to be able to say that by God's grace, I know of nothing that I can reveal today that is a huge problem, except South is made up of humans, starting with me, and so we've got problems, right? But there's no deception that I'm aware of, and I'm thankful for that. But we need to make sure that we always speak the truth in love. Hard to truth it, but when you don't, remember this. The devil is the father of lies. John 8. And every time you speak a lie, you're acting like the devil. And if lying is a part of your true character within, then you speak a lie because the devil is your father and you've never been born again. There's a second thing he mentions. And that is found in verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, so as to give the devil a foothold. Those all really go together. So the second thing is, get rid of sinful anger, but develop righteous anger. Did you get that? Anger is not a sin. In fact, the word angry found in the Old Testament, if I'm not mistaken, over 400 times, 75% of the times, uh, of the occurrences, it's talking about God's anger. So anger cannot be a sin, but there is something called sinful anger and righteous anger. You say, thank you for those categories, Pastor, my anger is always righteous. (laughs) I would say most of the time it probably isn't. What is righteous anger? God's anger? God's anger toward injustice and sin. The anger of William Wilberforce at the social sins in England when slavery was legal, that's righteous indignation. The anger of a Martin Luther King Jr., who in his sermons talked about the injustice was justified in being angry at the system Of racism in America. We must indeed be angry over those things that God is angry at. One old Puritan put it this way, he that will be angry and not sin, let them be angry at nothing but sin. He who would be angry and not sin, make sure that your anger is not aimed at anything but sin. Don't let anger master you. This is a quotation, by the way, from Psalm 4. David said, in your anger do not sin. When you are on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. And so the Apostle Paul, taking that text as his sermon text, says don't sin when you get angry. And even if your anger is justified, don't stay angry When you go to bed, when the sun goes down, don't still be angry. Even righteous anger must not be cherished, but must be dismissed before the day is over. And if your anger proceeds into the night, it simply shows that you are dominated and mastered and obsessed with anger and not willing to deal with it as you should. Isn't that convicting? Okay, go ahead and be angry if it's angry at injustice and sin, but even by the end of the day, let that anger go because your body cannot live with anger. You've got to give it up and let the Lord take it. Because if you are angry and there is sin in your anger and you will not let it go, You are giving the devil a foothold. What is a foothold? Someone describes it as a secure position from which further progress can be made, further ground can be captured. You think in the military uh, uh, of a unit coming to the enemy's territory and they get a beachhead, they get a foothold on that territory and from that base of operation they want to go further and gain more ground that's exactly what the devil does when we give him a foothold in our life. Did you know that you can go on some websites on your computer and they're not good websites to go to and when you visit that website they put something in your computer so that they can gain more ground, more information from your computer at a later date? Someone can tell me after the sermon what that is actually called. Uh, All I can think of is cookie, and I don't think that's the right term, but a cookie is something in which they can infiltrate your computer and find out where you have uh, been and, and connect again with you or keep you on their site. It's exactly what the devil does gets a foothold into your life, how much of a beachhead does the devil have in your heart? How much more ground is he gaining because you've let him in by your lust or your anger or your lying? That's what he's saying. Don't give him that opportunity. Jesus could say this, the prince of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. That's an amazing statement. You and I cannot say that. The devil is coming and he has something in me. There's a traitor in my heart. It's still the remaining corruption in my soul. And the devil plays against that with temptation. And when I'm excited or lured into temptation, it's because there's something in me that responds to the devil. I've got to get that out. Jesus said the devil's coming and he has nothing in me. Well, we must go on quickly. Number three, stealing. He who has been stealing must no longer steal, but now must work doing something useful with his own hands so that he might have something to share with those who are in need. Again, another one of the Ten Commandments. And we're told now to get rid of stealing, but do something productive, honest work. Stop stealing, start working. And you're not working just to get for your own benefit you're working to give. Did you see that? Thievery must be play, replaced by generosity. Best example of this, one of the best, is Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, who when he saw Jesus in Jericho, hid in a tree, Jesus said, I've got to come to your house. And when they got to the house, Zacchaeus was the one who said, listen, if I've taken anything from anybody, which is not if I did, but because I have, <laughs> since i have taken much from other people i will give back four times what i've taken real christianity changes us from being thieves to being givers do you work just to get or do you work to get and give the second is the christian's perspective number four Don't let any, this is verse 29, don't let any unwholesome talk, meaning rotten or filthy talk, come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, which apparently you need to be aware of their needs so you know what to say. And the goal is that your words will benefit those who listen. It's in the term of construction, which means your words can tear down or your words can spiritually build up. Speech is a wonderful gift. It reveals that we are made in the imago Dei, the image of God. We have the ability to think, and the ability to form words, and to speak. And words are a powerful things. As was said of Churchill, he was able to immobilize the English language and take it into battle. And so, you and I, with our words, do battle, often tearing down and attacking those around us with slander. By the way, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So says the scripture. Let's just track your words for a day and see what your heart is like. What was that you said to the waitress who was slow in getting food? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What was that lie you gave to your tax preparer because you realized you were going to pay more tax than you want to? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Just track your words, and I'll tell you what your heart is like. Destructive language needs to be replaced with edifying language. The tongue of the wise brings healing. Let your speech always be with grace. Always seasoned with salt. That means so that it might prevent decay. Look at number five. Stop grieving God and stop, start pleasing God. Verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed to the day of redemption. It says two interesting things about the Holy Spirit. He is God and the Holy Spirit is a person. This is one of the clearest indications in all the New Testament that the Holy Spirit is not a force, but a person. He's not an influence we repel. He is a divine person we reject. And to grieve him means that we can pain him. Parents, do your children ever grieve you? Have you ever grieved your parents? Do you know the pain of that? Spurgeon once said, For it is an inexpressibly delightful thought that the one who rules heaven and earth, the creator of all things, the infinite and ever-blessed God, has condescended to enter into this relationship with us so that his people, so close, that the people of God can influence the divine mind, can affect the divine mind by their actions. I can please God. I can grieve God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians, my aim, my goal is to do what is pleasing in his sight. And notice... We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's the beginning of our Christian life. That's Ephesians chapter 1. When you come to faith in Christ, He seals you until the day of redemption. That's the end of our Christian life here on earth. The day of redemption is when God comes back to take us to be with Him. And in between the sealing and the redeeming, the final redeeming, the Holy Spirit is called our Counselor. We use that term for a lawyer. But it's also one who comes alongside to help us, our aid. Don't grieve the Spirit of God, but please the Spirit of God. And the biggest reason is gratitude, not fear. Don't grieve the one who's done so much for you. He sealed you. He is going to be there to redeem you in the end. Don't grieve the one who inhabits you. The Holy Spirit's in you. And when you grieve him, well, you might as well eat poison, drink poison, because you're going to be upset internally when the Spirit of God is displeased. And then finally, kind of a catch-all term that we'll put under this idea of hatred, Verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander. It seems to be that this is um, many attitudes that slide into one action or one disposition of hatred. First, you are bitter and upset. It turns into anger and rage, which may turn into a fight, or you began to slander someone with your words, and all along it comes from hatred. How can you love God whom you haven't seen when you hate your brother whom you have seen? Later on, we're going to read in chapter 5, that uh, verse 5, that if this is indicative of you, you're not possessing the kingdom of God. You won't enter the kingdom of God if, this, if you're not putting off and putting on, putting off the, the vice, putting on the virtue. Instead, put on kindness. Verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ has forgiven you. Replace animosity with kindness. And kindness cannot be fabricated. It's not a human trait. For kindness is the fruit of the Spirit, rooted in the kindness of God, and so is forgiveness. So when you get to chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, be imitators of God. Love as children who are loved, And live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. By the way, Paul basically ends his little sermonette here by saying, Imitate God. And be Christ-like. Love instead of lie. Love instead of grieve. Love instead of hate. Love instead of destructive language and stealing what doesn't belong to you. Love instead of anger because God is a God of love. Imitate Him. That's how you are to walk. And when you do, the world will know Christ is alive. It's impossible to do this, by the way. I thought after telling you for 30 minutes what you should do, just to let you know you can't do it. Without Christ. Without being born again by the Spirit of God and without the indwelling Spirit in your soul. May God help us to live like those who know Christ. Help us to dress for spiritual success After being changed in our hearts and new creatures in Christ, we now dress and live in a totally radically new way. Let's pray. Lord, while we don't set out to draw attention to ourselves, if we live Christ-like, attention will come. So I pray that people will see our good works and glorify you. I pray that the way we walk and the way we live and the way we dress spiritually with virtue instead of vice would be so countercultural that the world would know and the world would see and the world would long to hear the secret. Help us this day to be clothed with Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.)